Well, American author Suzanne Collins uh, wrote a series of novels known as The Hunger Games. I'm sure you've heard of that. It was turned into a series of movies as well. Um, it's been deemed the most influential and successful teen literature, second only to Harry Potter. Uh, the difference is that Harry Potter, that series, is set in a world of magic and sorcery, whereas The Hunger Games is set in a, a dystopian uh, alternate North American world, uh, a North American country with, with these 13 districts kind of paralleling the 13 colonies, and, and there's a, a political and economic upper class, an elite class that uh, exercises its dominion over the disenfranchised majority. And so the way the upper class controls the lower class is through a tight control of the food supply. And so this is where the concept of the Hunger Games comes from and how they keep the population hungry and keep them, uh, all of their energy and time and focus is on survival because there's so little food that they don't have time to really th think about the situation they're in, realize that they're in the majority and overthrow the political situation. So the citizenry is constantly desperate for food. And uh, one of the main themes of the book is the relationship humans ha have with food and um, how domineering that can really be in your, in your, your thought process, in your psychology, in your relationships and everything, and how it can actually even be used as a, a, a weapon, which in history it has. If you, you think of the way the communists functioned in uh, Soviet Russia and that often using food, North Korea at, the, at this point in time as well, uses food as a, a way of domineering uh, society and keeping people under control. Now, one of the most common criticisms, literary criticisms of the Hunger Games series is that the, the themes and the ideas of the book were derivative from other books and other movies throughout time, and that the ideas aren't very original, they're just kind of stitched together from other people. Um, but in all of the reviews that I read, and all of the criticisms I read, especially of its derivative nature, nobody mentioned the very first example from which all the other books and movies uh, borrowed or stole of food being used as a, a tool to try to manipulate and domineer. And of course, that example is found in Luke chapter 4. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, where we will see the devil himself playing his own diabolical version of the Hunger Games with Jesus. Now, you'll remember at this point in Luke, uh, Jesus is being presented by Luke as the Messiah. There's a number of witnesses. He's building his case for it. He's now moved, Jesus has been presented as the Messiah through the witnesses. He's now moving into what we might call the board exam of Messiahship, you know, the, the, the entrance exam into his ministry, proving that he's the Messiah. And the, the one thing he has to prove is that he is sinless and that he can maintain his sinlessness even when put under the microscope, even when uh, his feet are put to the fire, as it were. And so he has gone into a time of testing by the devil, a time of temptation and uh, for these 40 days in the wilderness. And if he can get through that, he can establish himself not only as the Son of God presented by the various witnesses that have been mentioned so far in the narrative, but also by the experience that we then get to see him as he passes his board exams. Okay, so that's kind of where we, we find ourselves. Last week, we looked at temptations and how they are definite. Even godly people are tempted. Jesus is tempted. Temptation is not sin, right? Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. That they are difficult, 
but that that's no excuse, that this was a real temptation for Christ and yet he didn't succumb. And thirdly, that they are diabolical, meaning that they don't only come from within you and your sin nature, because Jesus didn't have a sin nature, but the, the devil's actually involved. And uh, even though the devil's not omnipresent, he's in one place at a time, so the devil's not really concerned with you personally, probably. Um, but the devil is, has his minions, you know, the demonic hordes, and he sets up a system which makes it easy for us to sin, uh, a world system that, that gravitates towards sin and fulfilling our fleshly desires. Okay, so that's kind of what we looked at last week. Now we're going to be looking at um, one of the temptations in particular. You might think, are we really going to go through the longest gospel one verse at a time? And the answer is maybe. Um, we're going to cover two tonight. Uh, no, I'm focusing on this section because I feel like it's one of the more practical sections in the first section of Luke, uh, in the first part of Luke, because we're, it's dealing with temptation. And Jesus conquered temptation, and so it is possible. And temptation is what all of us deal with every single day. You're not going to make it till Sunday without sinning. Trust me. And you will have no excuse because you're going to learn tonight how to avoid the temptation. Okay, so, so this is practical. So we're not going to do all three temptations tonight, just the first one. Let me read for you from verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, you know, where the baptism was, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, the 40 days, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And just from that one temptation, we're going to learn three lessons about temptation so that we can um, learn to resist them ourselves. And the first is the circumstances of, of the temptation. And they'll parallel with circumstances we find ourselves in. Secondly, the subtlety of temptation, so that you can see what the temptation is actually about. And thirdly, the solution to the temptation. And that's the key. That's what we really want, right? So firstly, uh, the circumstances. In, in verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, last week we covered the, the thought, well, how come the Spirit is leading Jesus into temptation? And we... we we clarify that. The Spirit's not leading Jesus into temptation. Um, the devil is tempting Jesus, not the Spirit. The Spirit is leading him while he's in the wilderness in the same way that the Spirit leads you while you are in various circumstances and being tempted. And, and that's why we pray, lead us not into temptation. In other words, lead us out of temptation. And the Spirit is not leading Jesus in, but leading him through and out this trial. Um, trials are inevitable. They don't mean that you're ungodly. We looked at that last week. But the circumstances here, we find ourselves in the wilderness. Picture that. It's a desolate place. It's hot. It's dry. It's dangerous. Mark, Mark tells us in his account that Jesus was among the wild animals. Um, there is a loneliness there. Why didn't he just stay and do this 40-day fast in his room? You know, or at a retreat center or something like that. Well, no, he's in the wilderness because he's being driven to the most extreme human situation, the, the complete isolation, the danger of it, the fatigue of it, the, the exhaustion of it, and the, the boredom of it even, in a sense, right? I mean, he's completely alone and vulnerable there. And so this is making it as hard as it, it possibly could be to be tempted 
in the way that we're going to see tonight when you have not eaten for 40 days and you're isolated from all of your friends, from all of the security, just the loneliness and the isolation of that is all part of this temptation. Also, the wilderness is significant because Jesus Christ in this point in his ministry is bearing the curses that are promised to his people under the Mosaic Covenant. Now, if you've been coming to our evening services, we've been working through the book of Deuteronomy. And this week specifically, we're going to look at the carrot and the stick, the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, Jesus Christ came to fulfill the whole law of Moses, which is exactly why we don't have to fulfill the law of Moses. That's why you can wear polyester or cut your hair any way you want or shave your beard any way you want or eat shellfish, even though they couldn't under the law of Moses, because Christ fulfilled that. Now, one of the things that he came to do is bear our curse and the curse of his people and all of the punishment of his people. And so this is a very symbolic moment that he's out in the wilderness because, uh, you know, being tempted in these different ways, the way his people would have to be cursed, they were sent into the wilderness as well for 40 years. Here it's for 40 days. I think that there's a parallel there maybe. But um, he's, he's establishing his messiahship he, at this point, is going to be weak physically, sunburned. He may have swollen ankles. He may have blisters. But above all, he is hungry. Now, let me ask you this. Would you be at your most godly or your most vulnerable to temptation when you are hungry? Obviously, that's when you're most vulnerable. As we said last week, that's where the word hangry comes from. It's like you get angry because you're hungry. Your, your body and your soul are so closely linked that when your body is under stress, your soul is stressed. And so when your body is, uh, you know, if anyone who's had a chronic disease for a long time struggles with depression, it's just one of those things. It, the, the two go hand in hand because as your body is stressed, your, your heart is stressed, your, your soul is. And so this, this is all taking Jesus to the, the edge of his human capabilities. And yet we learn that your human frailty is not an excuse for sin. Jesus had the same human body that you do, he was under the same stress, probably worse stress than any of us will ever go through, 40 days of not eating. And yet, it's not an excuse. So the words here for 40 days, verse 2 says, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, that phrase being tempted is a, um, it's a continuous passive form of the participle, and what it's referring to is an ongoing temptation for 40 days. So don't think of it as if somebody asks you in Bible Trivial Pursuit, how many times was Jesus tempted? If you say three, the answer is eh. Wrong. Uh, he was not tempted three times. He was tempted innumerable times. The Bible doesn't tell us. He was tempted continually through this 40 days, and he faced other temptations in his life as well. For example, when he was on the cross, and they said, well, if you're the Son of God, take yourself off the cross, and then we'll believe in you. That was a temptation. To, he could have done that then. Um, so th he didn't only get tempted three times in his life. For 40 days, he has been continually tempted, but these three happen at the end. Because it says, after the 40 days, we're completed. This happens. So, so this is Satan's end game. This is the coup de grace, the, the intended death blow. This is his, his most sinister attack on Christ after the 40 days. And he waits till the end of it so that he can assault Christ's resolve, striking at his humanity. His humanity would be at its weakest at this point. This is really... Uh, a below-the-belt tactic. He's not playing fair here. Looking at the, the limitations that Christ voluntarily took on when the Word became flesh. 
So verse 2, when it says, when they, the 40 days were ended, he was hungry. Well, no kidding. Medical aspects of prolonged fasts like this are frightening. In the first three days, your body is still using energy from glucose until it depletes that. You'll be weak after three days. At that point, your liver starts a process called ketosis, uh, in which it is drawing it's all of its energy now, not from the glucose in your system, because that's depleted, but it starts drawing energy from your fat reserves. So, I mean, that's what people do today when they do the, you know, the, the keto diet. Um, it's, they want to use those fat reserves. What they don't realize is as soon as they go off it, it all comes back. But anyway, um, if you really want to get thin, you push past that after three weeks of not eating at all, your body has used up all of the ketones and everything in your body, and now it starts shifting to using your muscle and even vital organs to fuel itself. So don't eat for three weeks. You will absolutely start losing weight. All your fat will be gone, and then your muscles will start being gone, and then eventually you will die. Um, but you will be thin when you die. I mean, if that's the goal. I don't know why that would be the goal. It becomes life-threatening when your body starts tapping into your bone marrow in order to get sustenance. So most human beings will die before 52 days because of the bone marrow. Um, in fact, the longest recorded fast in history was in uh, 1920 when the uh, political prisoners of the Irish Republican Army had a, uh, not the, you know, the, yeah, the Irish Republicans. They, uh, went on a hunger strike, and they lasted 94 days. It's the longest any human being's ever gone without food that we are aware of. Nine of them survived, three of them died. Pictures of their emaciated skeletal forms, you can see them on the internet, and they're just haunting. It's a very, very, very painful way to die. And so Jesus is like halfway there. You know, he's, he's half dead, physically speaking. Um, he would be extremely hungry. The word is famished. So don't underestimate the power of Christ's will here, his willpower to overcome what his flesh is crying out to do, is to survive. But he has this, this will. And if he sins even once, he can't die for your sins, because then he's guilty of his own sin. And even one sin makes you infinitely guilty. So this is an extremely important moment in the history of the world where Satan comes and tempts Jesus when he's this weak. And yet, even with the severe difficulty, it's not an excuse to sin. Jesus overcomes it. Now ask anybody who's had a baby how your physical limitations kick in. Sometimes they're just unavoidable. You have a baby, guess what? You're going to be sleepless for a while. Um, you, you're going to miss meals yourself, very possibly. You, you're going to be driven to the brink of insanity. Um, and the only reason people have more than one child is because when they come out, they're really cute and you forget all about it. But it, it can be brutal, right? Um, if you've skipped a meal, if you've ever tried to fast for a few days, you know that this can be very, very serious. Now, God allows these trials in order to prove your faith. He allows circumstances to orchestrate a difficulty so that you lean on him, so that you overcome your flesh, so that you choose rightly. And if you do that consistently, you learn that you are a believer because this is, this is a, a, a spiritual endeavor. And so that's kind of what's happening here with Jesus as well. He is proving to the watching world, to, you know, Scripture's going to be recorded, that he is who he says he is. 
First Peter 1 6 says, In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That word in Greek is the same word for the word for temptation here um, that Luke uses. Perasmos. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you yourself will undergo trials like Jesus went, even physical trials and physical circumstances. And the reason is because it proves your faith, not to God. God knows if you're a believer or not. You don't know if you're a believer. Because it's easy to say you're a believer when everything's going well. It's when the trials set in and you respond rightly that you realize, I actually believe this stuff. And other people can see that too. So this has to do with the circumstances of temptation. Secondly, we see the subtlety of the temptation. In verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Now, if you're going to catch a catfish, all you need is some moldy bread that you can stick on the hook and throw it in there. But if you are going to catch a prize rainbow trout, you're going to need some mad skills. You're going to have to pick the right fly, you're going to have to be in the right place at the right time. You're going to have to get your technique down. It, it takes skill. Now, Jesus is no dumb catfish. He's not going to fall for some little temptation. It's not like, you know, the, Satan, all Satan has to do is like, okay, you've been here in the wilderness. There's no one around. Here's a prostitute. Isn't she pretty? I mean, Jesus, is, he wouldn't even bat an eyelid at that kind of temptation. So Satan has to get really crafty here and very subtle because one of the ways that temptation is most effective is when, and you'll know this from your own life, when you're not quite sure if it's right or wrong. There's something in you that tells you, I don't think this is right, but I can't quite tell why. And that's enough of a gap for you to take saying, okay, well, then I'm going to do it. Because it's not crystal clear if this is right or wrong. And so it's, it's, the subtlety of the temptation is a lesson that we learn here because look at what he does. The devil said to him, verse 3, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Now, at first glance, this seems to be a strange temptation because there's nothing wrong with eating bread. Bread's not sinful. And so what is the temptation? Ooh, here's some bread. Okay, come. What's next? You know, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with bread. I mean, every time you go to a restaurant, they offer you bread, right? It's free. Don't be like, no, I'm a Christian. Get that behind me, Satan. No, it's bread. It's fine. Put some garlic on it. It's even better. What is the big deal? Now, if he had been offering a gluttonous portion, or if he had been offering him a pork sandwich, which would have broken the the kosher laws of Moses, now we're now, that's more clear cut. But bread? I mean, it's, it would have been way more obvious what's happening if Satan had come and said, here are some brownies baked with marijuana. <laughs> you know? Okay, now we know what we're dealing with. But it's bread. Eating bread is lawful. Jesus could have eaten it then. His fast is over. Even if he needed to do 40 days, and why did it have to be 40 days? It just... It just was 40 days, but it's at the end of the 40 days. So this is the perfect time to break his fast. You see how subtle this is. Satan knows that this is going to mess with his mind, in a sense. Like, you've got to be saying, well, I am the Son of God. I can turn that um, into bread, and I can eat bread, and there's nothing wrong with eating bread. And you can imagine Christ's flesh crying out for it, because when you're hungry, and there's an opportunity to have food, you're, 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 you start salivating. 
your, your body kicks into like eat mode. And his fast is over, as we said, because verse 2 said, when they, the days of his fasting, were ended, he was hungry. So Satan is subtly enticing Jesus to something far more sinister here than a harmless snack. He said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone. That's the temptation, not the bread. We get fixated on the bread part. But this is, if you are the son of God, and in Greek, the way you structure sentences, conditional clauses like that, um, it, it tells you what's implied. So this is called a first-class conditional clause, and it's set up in such a way that the assumption is granted as true for the sake of argument. Okay, so in other words, you could translate it this way. Since you are the Son of God, and I'm not saying you're not, you know, if you're the Son of God and we both know that you are, so Satan isn't questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God or not. He's, he's granting that as a premise. Look, I know you're the Son of God. You know you're the Son of God. Since you're the Son of God and you're hungry and there's no food around, do this thing. And so the temptation is actually found in that word command. Command this stone to become bread. He doesn't say, I brought you some bread. Isn't that interesting? If Satan had showed up there with a nice French loaf, fresh out the oven, that would be one type of temptation. But he doesn't. He's not tempting him to eat bread. He's tempting him to use his divine, miraculous powers for his own benefit alone. That's the temptation. Otherwise, it would have been way more effective to just have a table full of good food out there. But there's nothing wrong with Jesus eating food. It's not sinful to eat food. There's no agreement that he'd be breaking. There's no law he'd be breaking. What's sinful is for Jesus to be self-focused instead of focused on his mission. That he would disobey what God wanted him to do and God's will for his life because he wanted what was good for him in that moment. So think about this. Never once in his ministry did Jesus ever do a miracle that benefited him primarily. He always did it as a manifestation of God's glory for the sake of God and for other people. Even the time that he turned a little bit of bread into lots of bread to feed the 5,000, I'm sure Jesus ate some of that bread too. I'm sure he was hungry. There's nothing wrong with that. He did it for the people. It said he had compassion on the people, and he said to his disciples, I have compassion on the people because they've gone without food. But here, the devil's saying, I want you to tap into your divine power just to stop being so human. And this would have undermined the whole mission of Jesus Christ to emptying himself of his divinity. Uh, no, no, we he didn't enter himself as divinity. Emptying himself of the inter independent use of his divine attributes in order to become like us so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. If he just used his miraculous powers to, to fix every little problem that came his way, he wouldn't know what it was like to be human. And there are human beings in the world that have gone 40 days without food. And you know what? Jesus knows what that feels like. And that's what Satan was tempting him to do, was to stop voluntarily submitting himself to this humanity thing and just, hey, if you're the son of God, and you are, why don't you act like it? 
And forget this whole being human thing. They're so weak. They're so pathetic. They can't even go 41 days without food. Come on. Just end this whole thing right now. And yet Philippians 2, 7 says that Christ emptied himself of that prerogative, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And it is not in the likeness of men to be able to snap your fingers and eat bread whenever you feel like it. So Satan is saying, I want you to tap into your divinity and end your humble existence as a human. So the temptation, that's why it's so subtle, the temptation is to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Eat bread is not the temptation. That's a legitimate need. I want you to tap into your divinity to do it. And stop being so weak like these humans. So the hunger is just a decoy in the game. It's just a strategy in the hunger game here. The devil's using this physical desire to show dominance and manipulation over Jesus. Like, ooh, I got him to do something because he was too weak to say no. We, we make this mistake when we say things like, I couldn't help myself because dot, dot, dot. Whenever you finish that sentence, you're missing the point of this temptation. Jesus was able to withstand even a legitimate thing and you're saying, well, the reason I did this is because you know, she makes me so angry. The way he spoke to me is why I did that. I was so hungry, which is why I snapped at you. That person cut me off in traffic, which is why I used those gestures and that colorful language. It's because they did something that I did something. No, there's never any excuse for that. So we need to be on guard against swallowing Satan's hook by being too focused on the innocence of the bait. Stop looking for like, well, technically it's okay for me to do this. Think about what gives God the most glory in any situation and choose that. Stop trying to rationalize it away. You know, say, well, a legitimate thing. I need to make a sale for work, so I'm just going to tell this little white lie and then I'll make the sale because I need to provide for my family and I need to tie it to the church. So these are all legitimate things. I'm just going to do it in this little illegitimate way. That's buying the subtlety of temptation. You you know, a man needs to work hard to provide for his family, work hard in his career, so hard that he starts skipping church on Sunday. So it's a legitimate need and it's a legitimate desire accomplished in an illegitimate way. I'm sure you can think of a hundred examples. But there's another subtlety here in this temptation that's not quite obvious at first. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And I've already explained that if is assuming that you are for the sake of argument. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought about this at this, at this point in the story? How does Jesus know he's the son of God? Think about it, and if you want to, you can actually shout out the answer. How do you... At this point in the story, how does Jesus know he's the son of God? His mom told him. That's the exact answer I was looking for. Thank you. Um, He heard it. That's how he knows. He's had no evidence so far, except for one thing. We'll get to that. But up until this point in his life, he's heard from his mom, you're the son of God. You know how I know? Because, well, I got pregnant and I was a virgin and then these angels came and then there were these shepherds and there was this wise man and the reason we went to Egypt is because you're the king of the Jews and, you know, our parents tell us stuff. Some of it's true. Some of it's not. 
And I'm sure your parents think you're very special. And this lady thought her kid was the son of God and stuck to that story the whole way. And Jesus didn't see the angels. He might have heard the little drummer boy in the background at some point, but that's not in the Bible. Um, he didn't know he was the son of God, except that that's what he had been told. And of course, knowing the scriptures, because the first thing he does in his ministry is he starts saying, these scriptures are being fulfilled in your hearing. And then, of course, there's one event that he's just experienced just 40 days earlier at his baptism. The spirit came upon him bodily. And he heard the voice of the father say, this is my son. But he hasn't done anything yet. So this is really subtle because he hasn't taken his divinity out for a spin, as it were. He's done no miracles. John chapter 2 verse 12 says that his first miracle was at Cana, the water into wine. So he's no, he has no actual evidence except for what he's heard. He's heard what God said. He's heard what his mom said. He's heard what maybe Simeon and Anna said and those reports that have been passed down, what John the Baptist said, what Elizabeth and Zechariah. He's only heard stuff. He's never actually been like, well, if I'm God, I mean, that's like super, Superboy finding out, you know, you're actually Kel-El, you actually come from um, Krypton, and now that you're in the yellow sun, you can actually fly. And Superboy says, awesome, I got to go do my homework. No, he'd be like, wait, I can fly? Let me try that out, Right? So Jesus found out he's the son of God, and Satan's saying, you know what? This would be the perfect time for you to just take it out for a spin. See if it's true. I mean, I think it is true. Since you're the son of God, just get this done. And that would settle not only your hunger for food, but your hunger for evidence that everything your mom told you was true. Just use a little bit of your divine power. You see how subtle it is? How often are you tempted to look for evidence of something that God has said rather than just take him at his word? So that's the subtlety of temptation. Finally, we look at the solution to temptation. So we've seen the circumstances, the subtlety, and the solution here. In verse 4, Jesus answered him and said, It is written that you should not... Sorry, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone. And Matthew tells us that he quoted the rest of that verse as well. It's a verse from Deuteronomy. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So man shall not live by bread alone. So every time that Jesus is tempted here, all three times, his response is always the same. He starts off with, it is written. The second temptation we'll see, he also says, it is written. The third one, it is said, and then he quotes the scripture. These are formulas that they used in those days to introduce a quotation. What we do is we say, um, you know, uh, and, and President Biden said, quote, and then we talk, 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 and we say, unquote. What they would do is they would say, you know, this person said, and then they would start talking, or it is said, or in, when you're quoting scripture, you would always say, it is written. So that what Jesus does, the way, he, the solution to temptation is quotation. Quoting scripture. It's really interesting. And all three times, by the way, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. That's why we're working through Deuteronomy in the evening. My Old Testament professor at seminary said that if you had 
if you were at a church, like as an interim pastor or whatever, and you could only preach one book for one year, it should be the book of Deuteronomy, of the whole Bible. And you're like, <laughs> didn't see that coming. You would have thought maybe Gospel of John, Book of Philippians, I don't know. Nope, Deuteronomy, because Deuteronomy contains the foundation for everything you need to understand the law and the fulfillment of the law and the godliness and the practice of godliness. And you know what? Jesus didn't quote the book of John. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy every time. So that's a promo. Come, come on Sunday night. There's only a couple sermons left in Deuteronomy. But here we see this. Um, now, this quote is important. Moses, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses is reminding Israel in a, a little speech about what happened. That when they came through the Red Sea into the wilderness... And they found themselves in the wilderness. Where's Jesus? In the wilderness. So there's already, there's an intertextual link here. There's a parallel with the context that Jesus is in and the context that Israel was in. And Jesus is representing his people Israel here. And in the wilderness, they come out of Egypt and they realize there's no food in the desert. And what do they say? Oh, that he had left us to die in Egypt than to die out here in the wilderness. And then eventually, so God then provides them with what? Manna. But then they do that for a while and they're like, oh, we missed the, do you remember specifically what they missed? The, the leeks and onions of Egypt. Oh, the spicy stuff. A little bit of grilled onions, a little bit of leek soup. Oh, that stuff is so good. I'm, this manna, 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 what is it? What is it? I mean, that's what manna means in mana. It means, what is it? I'm done with this manna stuff. It's like your kids. It's like, oh, porridge again? Oh, I miss the biltong and babuti of South Africa. Um, you know, like, the, the grass was greener back there. So what does God do? Provides them with quail. So now let me ask you this. Why did God let them get hungry and complain before he gave them manna? Why not tell them, when you get out there, I'm going to give you manna? In fact, here's some. Take a bag of it just so that you've got some snacks on the way. A little bit of trail mix. No, he waits until they get hungry. He allows them to get hungry. He allows them to complain. And then he meets their need. And then he does it again with the meat. And with the water, by the way. Why? Because he wants to teach them something. And you learn better when you get yourself into that situation. Just like you learn better to change a flat tire when you get a flat tire than if you read it in a book, right? When it happens, that's when you learn it. And so God did that for them to learn, and he did it for us to learn. So let me read for you from Deuteronomy 8.2. Uh, Moses says, You shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, does that sound familiar? Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. It sounds exactly like what Jesus is going through in Luke 4, what Israel went through in Deuteronomy 8, in the wilderness. Verse 3, and he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might Make you know, so that he'll teach you a lesson, that he might make you know, know what? That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. That's the verse that, that Jesus quotes. 
So, the, I mean, the devil knows the context, and the context is so perfectly paralleled. They were in the wilderness, you're in the wilderness, Jesus is in the wilderness. They were hungry, Jesus is hungry. God provided for them. He said he would provide for them, and he did. I'm saying provide for yourself, Jesus, if you're the son of God. And Jesus says what Moses said to them. God allowed this scenario to happen so that you would learn to trust his word. You don't live on bread alone. You live on what comes out of his mouth. Rather starve than doubt God's word. That's the lesson. And Jesus quotes it. It's written. So I know I'm allowed to eat bread. But it's written that man doesn't need bread. Man needs faith. And that's the example that Jesus was giving us. That's the example. That was him fulfilling his mission. To believe every word that proceeds from the Father. Even if it means dying. You need to believe what God says. And of course, Satan doesn't even argue because Satan knows the context. He gets the point. He's like, oh, one for the home team, you know, and he moves on. And the point is simple. Trusting God's word is more important than life. Trusting God's word is more important than anything that you think you need. And food is never as important as doing God's will. Do you remember, I just thought of this idea uh, from John 4. Do you remember what happens in John 4? Um, that's with the woman at the well. But before Jesus meets the woman at the well, th it says that the disciples were very hungry. And so Jesus stays at the well and sends them into the town in Samaria to go and get food. And while he's there, the woman comes and he has a conversation about living water and being satisfied by the living water. And they come back with the food and she runs into town to go tell everybody and he, they say to him, Rabbi, eat. And it's in uh, John 4. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples say to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So here is another case where Jesus was hungry, but he is so satisfied and fulfilled and content with doing the will of God that his physical needs are no longer a priority whatsoever. That's where we need to be. That's, where we, that's what it means to be Christ-like. That your physical priorities... Money, retirement fund, food, insurance, nice house, a good education, new clothes, whatever it is, whatever is a normal physical priority that the whole world is spending all of their time thinking about and all of their time pursuing, and they're only happy when they have it, and then they want more of it, we need to be pursuing do the will of God and have that be enough in your life. Be content. It's okay to have a nice house. It's okay to have good food. It's okay to have clothes. But that's not our priority. Those are just incidentals. If we don't have them, it doesn't matter because we don't need them. You know what we need? Every word that comes out of the mouth of Yahweh. That's what we need. 
and he'll take care of the rest. And he always does, just like he did with Israel. And Jesus knew he would. And guess what happens? As soon as Satan disappears, the angels show up and they feed Jesus. Boom. And he didn't even have to do anything about it. And God provided for him, just like he knew he would. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, what's the application for you? Know the Word of God. Know your Bible. When temptation comes, it is written. Have a verse ready. And, and I know you can't, I'm not like, go home and memorize the whole Bible. Um, start with the things that tempt you. If, if you're tempted with overeating, start with, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I have food that is not... Um, that you don't know about, that, that to do the will of my Father and accomplish His work. Memorize those verses. If it's, if it's a, a temper, then you memorize Ephesians 5, that the anger of man it does not accomplish the righteousness of God. If it is uh, envy, you memorize verses about that. If it's gossip, you memorize verses about that. If it's swearing, Ephesians 4.29, with no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification. Whatever it is, go find a verse, memorize the verse. And when you're tempted, it is written, boom, say the verse. Or just say it in your head, otherwise sometimes people are like, really, that guy again with the Bible? But um, you're saying it for you, not for others. I'm not saying spout the verse when other people are tempted, unless they're, you know, you're counseling or discipling them. But for you, bury the Word of God in your heart so that the Spirit can bring it to your remembrance when you need it. So, I hope you can now discern some of the devil's strategies in his Hunger Games. Don't be trapped by the lie that circumstances are an excuse to sin. Don't be fooled by the subtlety of temptation, thinking that, well, the activity isn't sinful. What about the means? And then know your Bible and use it as the solution to temptation, just as your Savior did, to win the devil's hunger games. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word and how it is a lamp unto our feet so that we don't stumble in the darkness that we can spot the enemy's tripwires and that we can avoid them. I pray, Father, that you would help us to know your word and hide it in our hearts and that you would protect us from the evil one and lead us out of temptation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we've got seven minutes uh, for questions. Any questions? Nobody's tempted by anything. Yes, Lisa, you're tempted. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old when he was left behind in Jerusalem, and they finally find him, and he says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Right. You've been told, you told me he was my father, so why are you looking everywhere else? You should have come straight to the temple, yeah. So no, I, I definitely believe Jesus knew that he was the Son of God. I, I know that he believed he was the Son of God, but he hadn't proven it yet, because he didn't need to, until it was time. Yes, uh, Danny, you had your hand.
whitewashed tombs and that kind of thing. Yeah, okay, that's an interesting question. Let me, let me sum it up. Um, Danny's asking about the, the um, instances in the New Testament where you see um, godly people insulting or having uh, insulting names for uh, their, their rivals or their enemies, their opponents. Like, for example, John the Baptist calls Pharisees, you brood of vipers. Um, Jesus calls Herod, that fox. You go tell, you go tell that fox this... Um, he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. And what was the other example you gave? Oh, yeah, the sons of Belial um, in the Old Testament that's used, meaning basically sons of Satan, as a way of insulting people. And, um, I mean, are you asking, is it okay if we do that? Um, <laughs> so I would say you need to be careful. Um, so certainly in Christ's preaching, John the Baptist preaching in the in the communication of the Old Testament, you have literary techniques that are used for effect that I think take great skill and wisdom, but are legitimate uses, especially if Jesus does, it's always right. But uh, for example, when Jesus calls Herod a fox, you know, you go tell that fox, blah, blah, blah. So we think of a fox as maybe like crafty or um, sneaky uh, something like that, but that's not the Old Testament view of a fox. The word for fox is like the word jackal, and it was referred to an animal that was a scavenger. And Herod, he's, what Jesus is doing is he's very subtly aligning himself with the people who believed that Herod was not a legitimate ruler of the Jews because he had scavenged that position. Um, because he's not, Herod's not the king of the Jews, Jesus is. And so you go tell that usurper, that's another word, um, that what a fox would mean, a jackal. You go tell that scavenger, that person that picked, picked the throne of, of uh, Israel out of the trash rather than being appointed to it. So it is an insult, because, but it's true, and it's, it's Jesus kind of showing who's boss there. Um, so it takes skill and wisdom. Uh, examples like sons of Belial, I mean, Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, and it's just true. I don't know if I would use that in every counseling scenario um, or if I would just refer to, you know, the lady at the checkout counter as a, you know, daughter of Satan or whatever because you, you, you need to know the context and make sure who you're talking to is an unbeliever and that they're functioning in that way. So I, I, I just think you always want to err on the side of grace. Colossians says, you know, let your, let your speech be seasoned with salt, that it would be uplifting, building up. We just learned from First Thessalonians 5 that you admonish the unruly. That's true but you help the weak and you um, encourage the faint-hearted, you're patient with them all. So you, you have to pick your tone based on the person that you're dealing with. And sometimes if a person is stubborn or they're a hypocrite or whatever, they, they need firmer language. And literary techniques shift from language to language as well. And so, I mean, English has, has great ones as well, but um, you don't want to say something that's, that makes you sin. So I, I just think you'd need to be careful. Now, if you want to read about this, there's an excellent book, excellent book by Doug Wilson called The Serrated Edge. And it's a whole book that studies the sarcasm and irony employed by God in the scriptures. And he shows 
how God uses, because God also says some pretty sarcastic things to some of the people through the prophets. And, um, but he makes the point that it's, you know, you've you got to be pretty sure that you're doing the right thing there. I'm trying to think of a time when I've insulted somebody and I think it was the right thing to do. One doesn't pop into my head. Um, yeah. I, th I think I've called, I've, I mean, I've called a, uh, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness missionary who was leading people astray and was getting kind of cocky about it. I called him a wolf, and I felt like that that was a biblical term for what they're doing. And I warned the people that they were listening to a wolf in sheep's clothing. But I wouldn't do that too much because it's easy to go wrong with that. You brood of vipers. Yeah, uh, Jeff, and then Don. Tyler's there, yeah. Yeah, let me turn that into a question. Um, last week we mentioned angels, and I, I might have said something like uh, angels had free will. That's why they, rebelled, they could rebel in heaven. And then those that rebelled were cast out, and they became what we know as demons or fallen angels. The angels who were not cast out are referred to in the rest of Scripture as the holy angels or the elect angels. So remember the word elect just means called out or chosen. Um, I wouldn't want to develop a robust theology of unconditional election applied to angels. I, I don't think that the scriptures are clear enough on that, but it is true that they use the word of elect angels. And, but in my mind, at the very least, what that means is that there's good angels and bad angels. You know, there's the ones that didn't fall and won't fall, and those that did fall and can't be redeemed. Um, and so you've got the elect angels and you've got the unclean spirits. It's kind of what they call the demons. And whether or not they were predestined, elected through predestination, I think the Bible just doesn't tell us. It just doesn't tell us. I don't know what, what like the common view out there is of the reformers or that kind of thing, but I've, I've definitely heard of people talking about the elect angels because that term's used, but I don't think it's in the same context as our unconditional election um, yeah, through predestination. I wouldn't go that far, but it could be. We could get to heaven and be like, oh yeah, there was a tulip for angels too, and we're like, ah, got it. Um, <laughs> yes, Don. That's a really good point. Um, if you use Ephesians 4.29, which says, uh, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for the building up of the body, the edification of others. Um, if you use that as your test, if I'm going to insult somebody because it's good for me or makes me feel good or brings me some advantage, that's, that's probably something that's not for the common good. It's for me, and, and I should steer away from that. But if, it's for the, if it is for a purpose that benefits other people, then it could be 
a worthwhile thing to do. And if you, I, I think, I, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I think if you look at the examples that Danny mentioned, they would line up with that, that Jesus is speaking publicly about Herod to make a point to warn people about Herod. And um, the brood of vipers comment is, again, it's public. And even the, the woe to you Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs, um, you know, you're full of dead men's bones. That was done publicly in order to warn people. Jesus says, don't follow them because they'll make you twice of the son of the hell, and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it's for the purpose of other people. So I don't think I would just sit in my room and be like, ooh, those Mormons, they're such wolves. Um, oh, that makes me feel good. But if I was talking to a group of people, I would warn them that Mormon missionaries come across as very loving, good, but they're, they've been sent there by their father, Satan, to lead you out of the truth so that you will be condemned. Um, and you need to be aware of that. And I think I, I have biblical warrant to, to say that. You just don't want your reputation to be the guy that's always calling people names and then having to justify it. Um, but, but yeah, I do think it's a, a legitimate use if it's done carefully. Uh, one more, Alan. Yeah, I think in, in witnessing, what Alan's saying there is that sometimes people need firm language, almost shocking, to get through to them. And again, if you're, and I think what Don's saying is right, like if your purpose and reasoning behind it is good for the other person, um, then that's a, a way better motivation than just pe people insulting people. Like Christians aren't, in, you know, we have kind words. We don't have words that tear down. But sometimes people need warnings and names need to be named and, and that kind of thing. Um, and, and I think it's appropriate then.